This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. Please turn me till the message plays. Do lambing and shearing and all that. What, for anybody? For anybody. So that was a, what they called a proper looker yeah. in those days, yeah. And uh, I used to help with the lambs and drive the lambs out from the lambing field into their own fields. And yeah, now did you? Did they used to sleep in there? My dad had slept there and I slept there one night. That's the voice of one of the last lookers to have worked on the marsh. And what's a looker? A looker is a shepherd, but unlike a typical shepherd who would live in a cottage on a farm, these lookers were self-employed and would work for several landowners and would live in a cottage in the village and would travel to the, the various flocks. To their looker's hut. What a lovely part of the story of Romney Marsh to be able to capture. It is part of a story of how man has, over many, many centuries, tried to manage and manipulate this landscape against the forces of sea and nature. So that is what I've come to explore for this week's Open Country, to find out about the story of this very unique place, Romney Marsh in Kent. And Steve Humphreys, you're with the Kent Wildlife Trust. That's right. And we're going to go and visit the Wildlife Centre with you in just a moment. But we're standing beside one of these original Lookers huts, and it's just a tumble of bricks. Yes, sadly, this is the state in which many, many of the uh, original lookers' huts are are to be found today. Uh, They're a redundant building. They don't have a modern use. But you don't want to lose their story. They are an absolutely crucial uh, marker of the heritage of the marsh and the great importance of sheep farming to the marsh's history. Well, from this sad pile of bricks, Steve. Shall we go to the Romney Marsh Visitor Centre where actually I think you've got a lovely replica? That's right. Just open the window. So that's the wooden shutter back and the glass window. Should we go in? Yeah. It's like a garden shed size but built of brick. So it's a single room but we do have a fire hearth with a few bales which make it look as though there might be sort of a bed area, but not very much, and um, a bucket of water and a wee chair and a window. Is that what they looked out from, or did they have to go out round into the fields? They they used these places to keep their tools in, to keep medicines for the sheep, and then during lambing time they would live in them for up to six weeks of the year, and, of course, any sickly lambs would be brought in by the fire... (laughs) These buildings are pretty unique to Romney Marsh. You don't really find them anywhere else. The sheep then, very, very important to the marsh. All of the economy of the marsh at that time was based around sheep. It started in the 17th century and, of course, wool smuggling was big business at that time. A cynic may say, why not have... 250,000 sheep as close to France as you can get them. No, no, they couldn't possibly have had all those sheep because they wanted to smuggle the wool out well, and avoid the taxes. And 
I'm afraid so. If you look at the records, during the last couple of years of the 17th century, something like 100,000 wool sacks were smuggled just to Calais each year. Oh, my goodness. So... <laughs> That's so a lot of wool. That is a lot of wool. Now, you could expect a bit of smuggling here. We're on the coastline. France is a stone's throw away, really. Yeah. But the wool, that amount... Yeah, it was big business. Over time, the smuggling in of spirits, tobacco, tea particularly, became even bigger business. And people mentioned brandy, but, of course, it was largely gin that was smuggled into Kent. And in fact, there's a story which I can't corroborate that the people of Kent in the villages used to clean their windows with gin. <laughs> but the wool smuggling... How did they do it? I mean, they didn't sneak in in the night and shear the sheep and then slip off with the wool, surely? Boats were built specifically for smuggling, usually large rowboats, and the sea smugglers would come over from France, go from here to France, and then the land smugglers would be a gang of 100-plus. But how did they... Sorry to be pedantic. How did they get the wool... Because as they didn't take the sheep, they took they the took wool. They took the wool, yeah. So does that mean that the farmers had the clipping and then it was stolen out of the barn to be... It wasn't stolen. Uh, I mean, the farmers stood to gain just as much as anybody else. So they're all in it. But the thing is, you can't romanticise it, because if there's all those thousands of pounds to be made, then it must have got pretty, pretty it was, nasty. It was nasty business. Yeah. And at the end of the 17th century, it was made law that the death penalty was introduced for wool smuggling. We have a famous fictional smuggler here on the marsh called Dr Sin, the character in many novels by Russell Thorndike. Lovely little novels, but the reality was probably a bit more frightening. And, of course, when smuggling in on this scale stopped, round about 1850, uh, that's when uh, the government adopted a free, more or less a free trade policy, so all duties were slashed, and also a proper Coast Guard service had been uh, established in 1831. So smuggling, as it was, really died out. And during the 19th century, uh, a lot of sheep were started to be exported to lots of countries, but particularly to New Zealand. This is a constantly changing landscape which has been manipulated by man and then nature begins to take back again. If we go back 6,000 years, the 100 square miles that makes up Romney Marsh now was just a large bay. It was all underwater after the last ice age. And the crucial point was that what was to become the English Channel became covered with shingle. And when the sea levels rose that shingle started to move. Shingle formed gradually over a few thousand years, so then that bay became a salt lagoon. And with three rivers entering it, bringing silt down, it became a salt marsh. And that's where the name Romney Marsh comes from. If you go on to what we know as Romney Marsh now, you won't find any marsh. And lots of visitors still come to the centre and say, well, where's the marsh? Well, there isn't. It's 100 square miles of good agricultural land, mainly now. It's so murky today, <laughs> the rain and the mist. Well, perhaps this is how people like to think of Romney Marsh as being <laughs> 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 wet. <laughs>
if you come right out to the furthest tip of the Romney Marsh as it juts out into the channel, there, there are two sounds that you'll <laughs> recognise straight away. That's the crunch of shingle under your feet and this hum <laughs> of Dungeness Power Station. I'm standing right beside it. It's a very, very unusual habitat. I'm here with Owen Lyshon. You're the manager of this nature. That's reserve. right, yeah, the Dungeness National Nature oh, Reserve. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people can say they've got a power station on their nature reserve. It's, well, I would say it's unique um, in this country, um, if not in the world, a national nature reserve, and right next on a neighbour's, a nuclear power station. So it's the largest shingle landscape in Europe. Huh. Should we walk a little bit? Why not? The shingle, actually, I'm quite surprised by its colour. Let me just grasp. I don't know if it's because it's wet that it is this lovely... Um, well, there's bits of black in there. But look at that ochre and look at the redness in that. Yeah, there. these all these all flint pebbles which have been rounded by the sea um, and have come along from the, the Sussex coastline over the last two to 3,000 years. And... On Dungeness, when I talk about the undulating landscape, if you see it, it's not purely flat. There is a kind of an undulation to Ridges. it. Ridges. And that has all been formed by the sea over the thousands of years. And are there special types of sea uh, grass that can grow in a very damp, you, salty you, atmosphere? You've got to be a tough plant to grow on Dungeness. You could probably argue that Dungeness is the probably the closest you're going to get to a desert in this country. And we're standing in the rain here. But, I mean, in a, in a context... Lots and lots of the flowers and plants and vegetation growing on Dungeness is low-lying. Um, it has to be. It has to be tough. So everything grows, and there's a quirky little house over on Dungeness, and it's got an oak tree. And the oak tree is about 70 years old, and it's only about knee height. <laughs> so everything grows prostrate form. So all this happens, this wonderful nature, and then this artifice of man behind Big industrial. <laughs> yeah, we have... People who come down and they look at it, it's lit up like a Christmas tree at night time, and they think, what a wonderful structure. We have other people who get out of the car and can't stand it. And so we have this kind of context where people have described Dungeness like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. And we have two power stations here. Um, one A station is turned off now, it's decommissioned, and that was built in the 1950s. And we have one which is still generating... Now, these power stations are built on this shingle landscape, which seems like quite a strange place to put a power station. They were built in the 1950s. The local fishermen told the government and the people at the time, don't build it. It's an active, dynamic coastline. The sea moves pebbles around. So we have a, a legacy where nuclear power stations have been built now, but they have to have a process of moving the shingle around to keep the sea defences. Oh, and... That has created a situation. Well, it's created a situation at the moment where more um, lorries are being proposed to take shingle from the fishing boats, the accreting side of the point, and taking them around to the west side of the power station and dumping the shingle in the sea to supplement the sea defences. And they've always done that with shingle since the power stations have um, been there? Yes, been... Most, yeah, I think started in the 70s, but they've, right. always, they've always done it, um, but it, there's a planning process now. To change the way they've normally done it? Now, today, the, the residents on Dungeness feel that there are other methods that they could get the shingle without having all these lorries running through the, through the village. So on the, on the other side, you have the power station and the environment agency, which need the shingle for vital sea defences. 
And so where do you get the shingle from? You can either scoop it up from one side of Dungeness, lorry it around, or what they're doing at the moment is taking the shingle from a gravel pit um, and driving it about a mile and a half down the road and putting it in the sea. The bottom line with all this is money. So it's an ongoing situation. Ongoing. I'm sure it will rumble on. It has been rumbling on for a couple of years now. This power station, yeah. um, what, how, what do local people think about it? Do you hear them talking about it? Do they hate it? Do they hate the noise? Do they hate the impact it might have on their landscape? Well, no. You will nearly find 100% support for the power station because it's bought all the jobs and all the money. Thousands of the homes which you um, see as you leave Dungeness, they've all been built from money from the power stations, from the workers over the last you know, 30, 40 years. There are a few brave souls have come out to have a look at oh, the, they're uh, tough, aren't they? the power station. <laughs> a terrible day like this, they're very brave. Hello. Hello. Do you have a connection here at all? No. So what brought you down? Well, because it's, off, it's an interesting place, isn't it? To what, say. What, what about it do you like? Well, <laughs> well it, it, it is so completely different and it's, I mean, it's just out to sea, doesn't it? And it's just shingle and it's, if it wasn't for that noise there from the nuclear power station, there isn't a sound, is there? Not a sound. Very quiet, isn't it? There's a small gate here and we can walk across the field and I'm with Joan Campbell and you're from the Romney Marsh Historic Churches Trust. And we have... Are you, you're one of the priests at the church. This one and another one? And Brooklyn. And you're Shuna... Shuna Body. Shuna Body. Right. Shall we go across the field? What a lovely walkway to a church. Through a little wooden gate, out onto the grass pasture. I best close it behind me. So we walk out. We've got a large flock of sheep grazing off to the left. We are walking down the grass slope. We have got ditches on either side of us and straight in front of us. But thankfully there is a ridge that we can walk across because our destination is the most beautiful little church sitting right just in the middle of the field. Just in the middle of the field, Joan. It's a st- there's no graveyard, there's no fences, there's no trees. No, um, the church was built for the people who came out here to farm this land when it was drained in the 12th century. Um, so there is the church, just left in total isolation, but it's still being used because they must have built it thinking that the land might have flooded again. Um, it was just built as a wooden timber frame church with lath and plaster. But a lot of the stone churches of the marsh have disappeared. But this little church really is tenacious and it's hung on through storms and plagues and pestilence so that we can visit it today. The land was drained by the monks of Christchurch, Canterbury in the 12th century under licence from the king because the population of this country at that time was expanding so rapidly that we needed more land on which to grow crops and, in particular, on which to graze horses. Does it still flood? No, it doesn't, because it's so well-drained now. But it did flood up until 1960, and uh, there were two couples living in nearby Brooklyn who were actually rowed out here by boat for their weddings. So how romantic is that? 
And as I approach it, we have a little bridge to go over just before we get to it. To me, you see, it looks more like maybe a farm building Absolutely. than a church. <laughs> Absolutely. It has a very domestic character to it, which is most unusual. And when we get inside the church, you will have a very big surprise. So we've come round to the, the wooden door at the front. It's, it's just got four main planks large metal handle and an enormous key <laughs> Shuna, oh, you're going to unlock it for us we always have to find just the right place as Jane will testify for absolutely that's it <laughs> so we'll the open brickwork and then come inside oh well now we've got the pews but the pews are built up into boxes that's absolutely right. These would have gone in in the 18th century because by that time we were a Protestant country and it was necessary for people to actually come into the church. So if they were going to come into the church and listen to long sermons and readings from the Bible, they needed somewhere to sit. Now add to that the fact that the churches were very cold, they weren't heated. So if you sat within a box you were likely to be much warmer than you would have been otherwise. Were these for the better of members of the community, they, possibly? They were indeed. Mm. They were rented out, and uh, it was your responsibility, if you were renting out a box pew for your family, to bring your family every Sunday and your servants, and otherwise, if you didn't do that, you were fined. And it still feels like... A farmhouse, a barn on the inside, the wood beams, you know, the way the roof is structured, uh, right up to where there's a christening font behind us and the altar, very, very simple at the far end. What's it like to be in here and be the priest in here, Shuna? I think it's wonderful, Winnie. Um, so picturesque, we can see is the, is the light coming in, Winnie. And you can't always see the congregation because of the, the box pews, which, uh, <laughs> which is quite entertaining. And what sort of size of congregation are you talking about? We have a monthly communion service and we'll, we'll get anything between about 10 and 15 people. But what's quite interesting is that we have quite an ever-changing congregation because we have walkers, we have cyclists. I never quite know who I'm going to meet, really. And then we have the most amazing carol service where we probably have in excess of 100 people and people bring their dogs and come in their wellies and all sorts, really. And it's one, <laughs> one of this great number. Joan? Fourteen because each parish has to have a parish church and because the marsh was such a difficult place to travel around because of the dikes and the winding lanes, the communities were isolated from one another. The marsh was not a place where you would want to live out of choice. It was a very unhealthy place. There was a, a type of malaria called the marsh ague, and uh, that wasn't something that you would want to catch if you could possibly avoid it. So the great landowners lived off the marsh, but because they had workers farming the marsh, they had to provide them with a parish church where mass could be said for their souls. Hence all the parish churches. We've heard a lot about working the landscape, the farming. So what I'm going to do now is come into the town of Lyd to meet 93-year-old 
Dennis Pryor, and he worked on this land. He worked with the Romney Marsh sheep. Dennis, hello. I'm just leaving my boots in the porch here. Oh, I have to say, it's nice to come in out of the cold and wet. <laughs> but I would say that sort of day would be, you'd be well used to that sort of weather, Dennis, working in that misty rain, that, oh. More than anything, it was getting used to li- living and working in the wind. Was it? That's worse. Because it's so exposed, isn't it, the landscape? Mm. Yes. Come in. Now, you were a Romney Marsh sheepman. Yes. Yeah. One of the main things about the sheep, they were producing wool. Wool was the main product. And therefore, we encouraged the larger sheep that produced more wool. Were the sheep really well suited to the place? They were indigenous, they were very hardy, uh, they were disease-resistant, and, of course, they could uh, put up with the weather. They, they could thrive on it. Did you enjoy the sheep farming? Yes. What did you enjoy about it? Was it was my first love, and still my first love. Oh. I was on the farm with the sheep. Um, you know, from eight, nine, ten years old, um, during the holidays and weekends, I'd be with the sheep, and uh, I got to know them. Perhaps they got to know me. <laughs> Our pastures were rich in wild white clover, but wild white clover was gold dust. Did they harvest the grass then to get the seed, to dry it, to sell it? Is that yes. what they did? That was yes. the crop. Oh, my grandfather, he retired on wild white clover seed. In 1920, immediately after the Great War, he grew a lot of wildlife clover seed that year and he sold it for a pound a pound. That was a lot then. That was a lot of money. <laughs> he made his wee fortune then. Um, uh-huh. But of course, within a few years, of course, agriculture went in decline rapidly throughout the world. When you talk like that, I can hear how you really understand this landscape. We live with it. We were brought up with it. Um, But oddly enough, our expertise or our method of grazing and managing sheep ceased when you got across the military canal. (laughs) How do you mean? When you got beyond the military canal, they were all foreigners. (laughs) Uphillers. What's an uphiller? An uphiller is anybody who lives and farms beyond the military canal. (laughs) (laughs) But our our methods of farming, keeping sheep... I mean, the sheepmen were shepherds, uh, the uphillers. They were called shepherds. Not lookers. Not lookers. Um, We were a law unto ourselves. Well, there are quite a lot of farming families, and was it quite a close-knit community, you know, through the towns and villages and the farms and the churches? Yes. Usually, he start, the family starts off as a looker. My father, he started out as an acre looker. A lot of the land was owned by uh, more prominent families who didn't live here. 
and they would employ a man to look after the land and all that was on it. Said just now, an acre looker. He was paid by the acre. Um, that was why he was a looker and not a shepherd. And so the whole family expanded, prospered. Working on the land all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's been a great life. <laughs>